friends, would you uh, turn in the Bibles that we have provided to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Found on page 807 in the Bibles we have provided you. And once you have find it, found, find it that, found that, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Hear the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham, the father of Isaac, and Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amimadad, Nashon, Amimadad, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salome, and Salome, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the son, father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jehoiakim, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoiakim, the father of Shatil, and Shatil, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abuad, and Abuad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eluad, and Eluad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Recently, my wife and I and maybe this is a, a closet sin that I'm confessing. My wife and I became obsessed with the TV show. It happens. We actually find time. It's actually scheduled into my iPhone. And uh, it's sent as an invitation to her. So we both have our phones dinging at the same time. And we became, became obsessed with the hit show, This Is Us. Has anybody else seen the show? Oh, my gosh. The rest of you are depraved. <laughs> deprived of good quality show. It is an amazing show. Anyway, Russell Moore, who is a good Southern Baptist guy, wrote an article in the, the Washington Post about this show, and it was called Why We're Obsessed with the Hit Show, This Is Us. And uh, this is what he wrote in this article. 
On the hit show, hit new NBC series, This Is Us, one of the star characters talked about, talked a reluctant colleague into spending the holidays with his family. Kevin, a washed up sitcom actor seeking a comeback on the stage, tells a woman about his adopted black brother, about his obese twin sister who is trying to lose weight and maintain a relationship with another food addict, and about his mother who is married to his dead father's best friend. He asks, don't you want to see that up close? Russell Moore goes on to say, the secret to this is us is, a less, is less about oogling some other strange dysfunctional family as it is seeing in it our own. So this show is, is this strangely dysfunctional family that has all kinds of strange drama and it, it's really kind of fun to watch and patch together all these different pieces and you go at the end go, I didn't see that. That, oh, that explains this. The same is true as we look at, at this Ancestry.com-esque story of Jesus Christ and his genealogy. We look at all these strange names and you're going, really, you're going to do a sermon, 40-minute sermon on these all these names? How are you going to pull the gospel out of this? But the reality is one thing immediately comes clear from this list is that Jesus comes from a very long line of really messed up, screwed up people, much like our stories. If we can be honest, we all have dysfunction in our genealogy, whether it be generations and generations ago or in our own current story right now. And Matthew, the author of this gospel, extends the exact same question that Kevin asked his, his colleague. He, Matthew is asking, don't you want to see this up close? Don't you want to see the story of the gospel unfold that Christ came for sinners? He's inviting us to see Jesus' strange, dysfunctional family as our own family. And thus finding hope for our broken, lost world. We, we can see it briefly. I'm going to tell you about a man named Jehoiachin. He was one of the many dysfunctional members of Jesus' family. He was described in 2 Kings chapter 24 as an 18-year-old young man who, when he became king, he reigned only for three months. I think teenagers today would be lucky with three months. But three months, and then it goes on to say, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. So not only was Jehoiachin a really screwed up young teenage young man who tried to do his absolute best, his father, he came from a line of men who just messed it all up. And this young man was found in Jesus' genealogy. No, no teenager would like that kind of reputation. Last week, we looked at a scandalous individual who would have been a very unlikely candidate for Jesus' family tree. 
Her name was Tamar. And Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. And what did she do? She prostituted herself out to her father-in-law. To her father-in-law. Some of us should just kind of shiver at that thought. Prostitute herself out to the father-in-law. And I really encourage you, go back. If you weren't here last week, listen to it. We quickly saw that Jesus, according to his human nature, is the direct descendant of an ugly, a perverted encounter between a man and his daughter-in-law. And Matthew, the author of this genealogy, he doesn't sanitize the genealogy at all. He doesn't give us the highlight reel of, wow, okay, so let's, let's go through the list and find the really good guys, and you need to emulate these people. He doesn't sanitize it at all. He goes right out there and he lists some of the more questionable characters in Jesus' family life. But there's something strangely powerful about these stories. As we're invited by Matthew to kind of say, don't you want to see this up close? We see, as we get closer, we see a revelation of scandalous grace to undeserved people. And we're going to see be able to see this encouraging hope for us today and in this holiday season and beyond that no family, no family, no individual is too far gone for God to redeem. He takes broken people, messed up shards that once used to be beautiful pottery and he says, let me show you how I can make this beautiful again. The fact is, when all is said and done, this broken group of people ends with the birth of Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who heals the brokenhearted. So we need to look at a woman today by the name of Rahab. I've been kind of been given uh, some sharp elbows by people and saying, oh, this is the prostitution sermon series. And in some ways, it kind of is. You, you had Tamar last week who prostituted herself out one time to her, her father-in-law. And this time, we have a woman who is in, if you will, the trade. She, this, this is her job. But we must understand a little bit of Rahab's backstory and, and the story of what is going on. Her story is found in Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6. If you want the full kind of story, the full narrative, you got to go back there. But let me tell you, we have the Israelites, God's chosen people that have been taken out of Egypt, crossed through the Red Sea, and they were brought into this kind of wilderness area. And God had promised them that, listen, I have a land for you. I have a place for you that's going to be flowing with milk and honey, and there all the promises of Abraham are going, to be, are going to be met. And so they are now at the Jordan River. They are about ready to cross into the promised land. And this land is full of strongly fortified cities, and it had very strong armies. And in verse 1 of Joshua, uh, we see this. The sun... Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two spies in secretly. And he said, go view the land, especially Jericho. 
So they went there, and they came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now, we've got to go back a little bit further, though, to understand Israel's history. Back in Numbers chapter 13, we, read, read, we can read about an earlier spy mission where, where Moses was saying, okay, we're at, this, we're at this area where we're about ready to go into the promised land. And what does he do? He sends 12 spies to go into the land to see what was, what was going to be needed to be conquered and how they might accomplish this. And at the end of those 12 spies' mission, they all came back to Moses and reported back and ten of them said, there is no way on God's little green earth that we should even go into this land. There are giants. These people are huge. These cities are fortified. If we go in, we will be conquered and our wives and children will be taken in as slaves. There is no way that we should go into this, into this land. It is scary. But there were two men, Joshua and Caleb. Men of faith who said, yes, we should go. We should proceed with this invasion. Ultimately, Moses caved in and said, no, we're not going to go. This is a really bad idea. You're right. It makes absolutely no sense. And so what, what does, how does God respond? He was angered by their lack of faith. Angered by their lack of faith. Listen, I brought you through the Red Sea. The walls went up and you are scared of giants? Where is your faith? So he condemned them to wander in the wilderness for an entire generation as a punishment until all the fathers, the faithless fathers, died. But there's a flip side to this judgment. God remembers that only Jacob and Caleb had faith, and therefore they will enter into the promised land. And he even promised them that their children will realize the promises of Abraham. And God swears that even though he's punishing Israel, he will still be faithful to his original covenant with Abraham. God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. That's why baptism is very important. God makes promises that if we say yes to Him, He will respond graciously and offer mercy, grace, sustaining power and faith. God is providing grace to His promised people even though they deliberately disobeyed Him. So in this second chapter of Joshua... There's a whole new spy mission. But Joshua learns. Maybe he was a kind of a, he remembered how it was back in his day. And he thought, I'm only sending two in. Two went in originally. Two came back with faith. I'm going to send two into the city. And this time they went in secretly. So they wouldn't inspire any kind of gossip or fear in the camp. And they started a whole new mission. And this time, Israel will go in, and they will take the, take the land. All the inhabitants of Canaan had heard the stories about the Israelites. They heard about the power of God. And the chapter ends, chapter 2 ends with Joshua expressing 
and confessing his confidence that the Lord will deliver the land into their hands. And the story continues. The two spies somehow make it to Jericho. And this was a daring, crazy feat. It'd be something like sending two Marines into the very heart of Mosul by themselves without any weapons to scout out the state of ISIS and all their terrorist plots. Two guys into the land of giants. We're talking about a mission impossible kind of thing. I feel like I should have some background music. Dun, 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 dun. And that's what's kind of happening right here. You see, God has a purpose, though. He guides them to this harlot, Rahab, and we don't know a lot about her. We don't know, uh, you know, did she have a whole harem, you know, a, a whole house? Was it she in the red light district up on the wall? She didn't, like, we don't know anything really about her other than she had an occupation. Her trade was prostitution. A very unlikely person. For us, as we look at, you know, people out there, and we go, really, is God going to work in that person? They are so far gone. But, so we don't know much about her. But what's important here is how she treats the spies. What's going on internally and how it works itself out externally. God leads these spies to her and Rahab hides and shelters them. Notice how she puts herself into considerable danger here. Listen to this. Uh, in verses 3 and 7 of, of Joshua chapter 2. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you. Bring them out. Who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I don't know where they were from. And it, and it came about when it was about time to shut the city gate at dark that the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. This was high treason. This was high treason, a crime in those times that was punishable by immediate death. So Rahab was putting herself as a huge risk for the sake of saving these men. Why? Some of you may remember this. I, I quickly remembered that I'm an older guy than like Todd Pavin uh, when I was sharing this illustration. In 1993, a great, great movie came out. It was called Schindler's List. How many of you have seen Schindler's List? So those of you who don't know or need a little bit of reminding, Oscar Schindler is a factory owner who, who tried to rescue all these Jewish factory workers from the execution of the Holocaust. It was, it was a, a heart-gripping, tense kind of movie. And uh, as the movie progresses, the tension only gets more intense. Schindler and his Jewish accountant secretly work out their plan, all the while avoiding the detection of the Nazis. And as you watch the movie, you become very aware that Schindler is playing a very, very dangerous game with the Nazis. He's deceiving them, ultimately, to save the life of others. And if he is caught, 
he will die. Rahab is playing the exact same game. She is putting herself in the greatest of danger. And the point is here that Rahab put her in danger, herself in danger for a reason. It, it was no snap decision. There, there's no, none of us would really kind of turn your back on your religion or your country or, or your family just for kicks. Like, ah, on a whim, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to potentially have myself killed. Yeah, good idea. It's Tuesday, why not? No, it doesn't work that way. God had moved in Rahab's heart long before the spies ever came to her. God was doing something profound and mysterious and wonderful inside her. And when those spies providentially just showed up on her doorstep, she knew in that moment that she had to act. This is my moment to shine. And something happened that should surprise you and want you to cause you to look even deeper. In verses 8 through uh, 13 in Joshua chapter 2, we see that Rahab confesses her faith in Christ or in God, the God of this universe. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof where she covered them over with palm leaves. And she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord, I love that it's a personal, not that, that God that you worship, but the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out, or before you, before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there is no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, listen to this, He is the God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. Now then, swear to me by the Lord that I that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. She made a confession of her faith in the living God of the Israelites. She heard what God had done and God moved in her heart so much that she wasn't just scared what was going to happen to her. The fear caused her to believe. She believed in this Lord. She, she acknowledged that the Lord even had the power to bind these men to the, the solemn oath that they took. Think about the, the spies' surprise in this moment. She was a Canaanite woman. She was a woman. Canaanite woman who was a prostitute. This was one of the people that the book of Deuteronomy says that they were supposed to obliterate, to destroy. This is one of the people who, who is supposed to worship Baal and other false gods. But here she is. What is she doing? Could you imagine the two men looking at each other going, what is she doing right now? 
We're supposed to come back later and obliterate this land. And she is confessing her faith in the Lord. What do we do with this? This was a shocking moment. She confessed her faith in the one true God. So by placing her faith in this living God, she became engrafted into this covenant community. She became a part, an unlikely person, engrafted into this community. And the same is true for those who profess their faith in Christ. Your unlikely story, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you become a part, you get engrafted into this vine. And you become a part of this membership. God's membership. The family of Christ. So, we look at Rahab. She is a, if you will, a trophy of God's grace. She is a beautiful example of the transforming power of faith, of believing in Jesus Christ. Although she had little knowledge of the truth, she, did, she didn't have the Torah to sit and read through. She didn't have the Old Testament and the New Testament and go, oh, Jesus, I get it. She didn't have any of those things. Her heart was drawn, though, to the God of Israel. She risked her life. She abandoned her pagan culture. She, she brought her closest family members with her into this covenant community of God's people. Joshua would write many years after this event, in Joshua chapter 6, that she lived in Israel to this day. It was not a one-hit wonder Oh, I believe. Get me baptized. No, she, she lived until Joshua in that community, until this day. After the account of Jericho's destruction in Joshua chapter 6, Rahab's name is never again mentioned in the Old Testament. When we do meet her again in Scripture, it's in the New Testament. In the New Testament, her name is mentioned three times. One time it is mentioned in James chapter 2, verse 25, where she is an example of great faith demonstrated by action. You've heard, faith without works is dead. So in other words, the faith that you have in God should give birth to works. It's kind of a proof positive. Look at what, I believe in this. So much so that it works itself out like this. We also see her name mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, which is the great scripture's great hall of faith. By faith, this person. By faith, this person. By faith. Oh, to be listed in that group. But the most amazing occurrence of her name in this New Testament is the very first time it appears on the very first page of the New Testament, in the very first page, paragraph of the very first gospel our text this morning there in the list of jesus's ancestors we unexpectedly find rahab's name salome the father of boaz by rahab and boaz the father of obed by ruth and obed the father of jesse and jesse the father of david the king and so it, it is there that Ruth takes her place in this scarlet thread of redemption. The scarlet thread of redemption runs throughout the Old Testament 
and ultimately it leads to the Messiah. Rahab's inclusion right here underscores how scandal, scandal covered, colored so much of the Messiah's line. Scandal! A prostitute! Uh, okay, let's say that uh, you were sitting down at Thanksgiving uh, a couple weeks ago and you were just talking about your family and uh, somebody says, so tell me about your family. Would you immediately go, well, well let me tell you about Aunt Bertha. She was a whore. She, there's a great story here. Most of you would go, <laughs> we aren't talking about Aunt Bertha here. Nobody. Raise your right hand. Promise. Do solemnly swear. We are not mentioning Aunt Bertha. Do you got it? Do you got it? We're keeping it quiet. But what does Matthew do? He intentionally includes this scandalous woman in the messianic line that leads to Christ. Remember the quote from David Turner from last week? Throw it up for me there, Carol. He said, God's grace in Jesus the Messiah reaches beyond Israel to the Gentiles. We see it here, right? Beyond men to women. Beyond the self-righteous to sinners. In saving his people from their sins, Jesus is not bound by race, by gender, or scandal. The scandal motif in, in Christ's lineage is absolutely not an accident. It's purposeful. In fact, in, in Christ's incarnation, in his coming to earth as that cute, away in a manger kind of baby that we all have pictured, in his incarnation, Christ willingly, according to Philippians chapter 2, emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born into the likeness of man. Imagine this. This is the King of kings, Lord of lords, the one who was at creation, the agent of, of creation. He gave up all the rights and the privileges of being like God, the power that was there, and he became a, instead of a king who sat on a throne on earth who would rule and reign, he became a servant. He even took on flesh and dwelt among us. On top of that, he became an outcast, a public disgrace, and being made a curse on our behalf. On top of that, he remains even now the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, according to 1 Peter chapter 2. He's a stumbling block, and he is, he's an offense to the world. So further, the gospel message is a public scandal. When people hear about the gospel, they go, you got to be kidding me. You believe that? It's foolishness. It's shameful to believe in one who did this. You worship him? But those who are being saved, it is the very power of God. So God placed this prostitute, Rahab, in his plan to bring his son into the world. Rahab is extraordinary because she received extraordinary, scandalous grace. Think about that. There, there, there's no need 
to reinvent her, her past to try to make her less of a sinner. It is what it is. She was who she was. It was her past. And the reality is it's true for us too. There is no need, friends, for you to reinvent your past, to make you seem like less of a sinner. Man, if, if you were an alcoholic, if you were an adulterer, if you were, the, you, you put out the list, the most scandalous thing, there's no need to be ashamed of that. Prostitutes, outsiders, were welcomed into the kingdom of God. There's no room, friends, for reinventing. There's no room for covering up. There's no room for makeup, making things up. There's no, no reason for kind of doing make-believe. There's no need for faux finishes on your life. There's no need to even hide. We are to be a community of people who are saved by grace because of our faith put in the God of the universe. There's no reason for us to anymore be ashamed of our past. You can say, you know what happened? You know what I did? You know where I screwed up? Let me tell you. But by the grace of God, He saved me. And this is who I am and who I am becoming. There's no need to hide. Instead, what happens? Rahab and even St. Matthew kind of do this. Don't you want to see and experience the scandalous grace up close? Don't you want to taste and see that the Lord really is good? If it's true, He's calling you. Calling you to play simple faith in Jesus Christ, the one who will save, who will save you from your sins. The disturbing fact about what Rahab once was simply magnifies the glory of God's divine and scandalous grace. It magnifies it. This is who I was, was, past tense. It magnifies God's divine and scandalous grace, which made her an extraordinary woman. She became that by faith. Look at what God does with simple, broken people. He redeems them. He heals them. He, he strengthens them up. And the same is true for you. God's divine and scandalous grace transforms the simple, the mundane, the scandalous, and even the self-righteous. And he transforms them into works of art. Friends, don't ever forget this. God comes for the unlikely. I'm trying to catch all your eyes. comes for the unlikely. He came for me. He's come for many of you in this room. And if you really think about it, you did not deserve any of it. 
looking for the unlikely people that fill this room, that line our streets, that are in our workplace, that shop at the same place and work out at the same places that we do. God came for unlikely people. And he came for you. Friends, if, if this, if he is calling you this morning and you are recognizing it for the first time, I want to encourage you. I want to implore you to humbly, quickly, and gladly respond. Lord, I am so unworthy. In fact, you can call me Rahab. I am so unworthy of your grace. I recognize that I am, if you will, a deplorable. But today, right now, by faith, I receive your free and scandalous grace. For those of you who are in faith, who have received Christ Jesus, it's easy to quickly forget this, isn't it? We quickly move towards working it out on our own. I was saved by grace. <laughs> All right, now I've got to get going. But the gospel says no. <coughs> it is for you received it. You are still standing in it. And it is going to be the thing that continues to save you. So this is your reminder this morning, friends, to continue to believe in the gospel. To again this morning receive his free gift of grace this morning. And say, Lord, again, I, I confess. I believed in me more than I believed in you. I, I was like the 12 spies, scared to death, working really hard and saying, no way. Make me like Caleb or Joshua who believes in the God of Israel. Make me be like Rahab who has heard about your mighty deeds. Help me to believe again with more fullness and vim and vigor to my faith that you are actually able to accomplish what you say. And friends, that is the message that we take out. Friends, this is the good news for a lost and hurting world. But it's also the message for you. Amen? Before we pray, we are going to be coming to the Lord's Supper. Something that we do every Sunday. The amazing thing is that um, we come as broken people, right? People who, again, this week have uh, screwed things up and have lost our way, and we are uh, we needed this sermon, this text this morning from Matthew 1, 1 through 17 to remind us that my faith needs to be placed in the one who is sure. I need to place my faith in the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, 
the one who is always true to all of his promises. And this morning, if you have found your way being your own God, or placing your faith in family, or in work, or in your own abilities, confess. Trust the Lord. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, He will save you. He'll free you. There is nothing too big for the Lord. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you how you are our Redeemer, our Messiah. You are our healer. You are the eternal dispenser of scandalous grace. Lord, I pray that we will be like Tamar, who a sinner was still included in your genealogy. And we would be like Rahab, though a prostitute, place her faith in the God of Israel. Help us, Lord, to be men and women like that. And Lord, may we take this story, this message, these truths with us as we leave. May we share them in our own personal context, no matter where we go, as, whether it be as an electrician, a teacher, a pastor, a retired person, Whatever it is that you have called us to be about, Lord, may we take those messages, this truth, this gospel, wherever we go and share with a lost and broken world. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.